we are going to dive in here uh, to some scripture that I believe is, is super important. Um, we're we're going to take a close look at what I consider to be one of the, the greatest prayers of all time, uh, the, one of the most moving, uh, sincere, and faithful uh, statements uh, ever, ever yielded and spoken uh, by anyone, by the one himself, the only man, Jesus. And you're like, what is this prayer he's talking about? Uh, well, it's found in Luke chapter 22, so open your Bibles there to Luke uh, 22. It's in verse, uh, starting in verse 39, and it's here we catch up with uh, Jesus in the, the Garden of uh, Gethsemane. And having been there twice now, uh, once 20 years ago and just on this last trip that we took to Israel, I'm, I'm telling you guys, when I was there this time, for whatever reason, this is when the Lord began to plant the seed for this message here today. Because I, I looked around and I realized Jesus dealt with his humanity right here. He dealt with the, the sin of mankind right here. And he prayed. And it goes on to say here in Luke 22, starting in verse 39, coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed. And his disciples also followed him When he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this moment in time that we get to catch a glimpse of. And I pray that we would be able to uh, extract from this, Lord, what you want us to each hear and see. Pray that your Holy Spirit would fill us. Lord, teach us what you want us to get out of these scriptures. That we would learn about your will. We would learn about our own. And we would desire a closer walk with you, Lord. So today, God, we give you this day. We thank you for the opportunity to be together, to hear from your word, to worship. Lord, we ask that you would just lead us today and help us to grow. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we just sang about Jesus. We sang to him. We sang for him. And now we get to read about him and how he prays. Um, This, of course, is right after uh, Jesus and the disciples had spent some time in the upper room there in Jerusalem. Uh, they had been hanging out there for probably about 10 days, as it says in the, in the scriptures. You know, it, They were talking together. They were praying together. Uh, a couple of them were deciding who was going to be the greatest in God's kingdom. And they would listen to Jesus pray to the Father. And at that time, they were a little confused probably as to what was going to happen. And they would listen to Jesus, but they would also take what was known as the, the Lord's Supper, Communion. And we're told that Jesus and his disciples left that place and came to the Garden of Gethsemane. And we're familiar with uh, the events that happened, of course, after the Garden. And what Jesus told his disciples as we continue in Luke 22, verse 45, let's catch it up there. When he rose up from prayer, he had come to his disciples and he found them sleeping from sorrow. Then he said to them, why do you sleep? Rise and pray lest you enter into temptation. This was the second time he said this. So what actually did happen after that? What happened 
What were the course of events? We read that Jesus was betrayed by Judas. Jesus gets arrested. Jesus then heals the soldier's ear that had been cut off by uh, Peter. Peter then goes and denies Jesus. Jesus is mocked and he's beaten by the men who held him. Jesus faces trial by the Sanhedrin. He faces trial from Pilate. And he faces trial from Herod. And yet, once again, he gets tossed back to Pilate to get tried by him. Jesus is then nailed to the cross, and he still serves and does ministry while hanging on that tree. To the soldiers dividing up his clothes, he says what? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. To the thief on the cross, he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. And to his mother, he says, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. Even though he was nailed to the the cross, physically incapable of coming off at that moment, he could, it wasn't stopping Jesus from forgiving, from loving, from ministering. That's our Jesus. That's your Jesus and mine, the one who said, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's huge. And finally, we see the, the final event, in a sense, Jesus said, it is finished. And further on, later in Scripture, we read that he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathes his last. Now, going back to uh, verse 39, you know, I want to use this as our home base. We'll use it as a launching pad. We're going to talk about a couple more Scriptures that support what we're uh, talking about here today. And when Jesus prays these powerful words, you know, we realize a couple things about his physical state and about his spiritual state. But we're going to dive into what I call uh, a harmonized version of this account. And it's, it's good to mention that this account is mentioned in Matthew uh, chapter 26 and Mark chapter 14. It's also mentioned in John chapter 18. And what I'd like to do is read you this harmonized version. And it's as if the authorities were to interview uh, these men and say, what was your account? How did it go? What did you see? And we're going to combine their text from, their, from the Gospels, and we get a kind of a 360 view of the epicenter of the Garden of Gethsemane. And it gives us more detail. And it reads like this. And he came out, and he went forth, and his disciples, and his, as his custom was, over the brook Kidron unto the Mount of Olives, where there was a garden into which he entered himself and the disciples also followed him. And they came into a place which was named Gethsemane. And when he was at that place, he said unto his disciples, Sit here a while and pray. Pray that you do not enter into temptation. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John. And he began to be greatly distressed. He began to be sorrowful and sore troubled. Then Said he unto them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful unto death. Abide here and watch with me. And he was parted from them about a stone's throw. I'm assuming that's about as far as somebody could throw a rock. I don't know how far that is. But it's probably not too far. And he went forward a little and he kneeled down and fell on his face and prayed that if it was possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. All things are possible unto you. And if you are willing, remove this cup from me. 
Howbeit, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And again, a second time he went away and prayed, saying the same words, My father, if this cannot pass away except I drink it, your will be done. And being in agony, prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. That, there's a lot of activity going on in the heart of our, our Lord. There was a lot happening there. And now that we see this uh, 360 view, we see a picture you know, of, of Jesus coming from, you know, with his disciples from uh, the upper room over the brook Kidron, over to the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, hey, come with me, Peter. And you know, James and John come with. So he takes it into a little bit of a small group setting. And then further on he goes and he says, wait here. And he goes off to pray. It's a beautiful picture of him still leading by example, knowing what the road has for him later on. So we're going to cover three things, basically. We're just going to talk about these three things, what this scripture says, his prayer, what it means, and why Jesus prayed this way. So reading it, starting in verse 41 of Luke 22, it says, And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now that phrase, knelt down, it really says to, be, to put or to place or to lay down. And it's the same word which we see used later in John chapter 20, verse 13, where Mary is at the empty tomb of Jesus, and she's outside, and the angels speak to her, and they tell her this. They said, then they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they laid him. This phrase, knelt down, indicates that Jesus most likely did go to his knees, but ultimately laid down on the ground. We, we can't be certain of what it looked like, but we do know that Jesus went to the ground to do what? To pray. He went down to pray. In Matthew's account, we see this described just a little differently, as we read in the harmonized version that I just read. It says that Jesus fell on his face. And uh, if you see there on the slide, it says uh, in verse 39 of Matthew 26, he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So again, another account proving a, a witness of this account that we can gather. Jesus laid himself out to pray. And he went to that prayer face first. It's interesting to note that Scripture does talk about posture quite a bit in our prayers, right? I mean, we, you guys have all read it. You see prayers of, you know, people uh, sitting and bowing and face down, heads bowed, standing up, arms lifted high, you know, and I even came up with a little phrase that I need you guys to repeat for me, okay? It's, posture plays an important purpose in prayer. Huh? You like that? I want you to say it with me. Could you? Yeah. Posture plays an important purpose in prayer. All right, faster. Posture plays an important purpose in prayer. The, the fact is, it, it's not about the posture here so much. You know, it, posture does play an important role, though. You know, he was in a state of 
surrender. He was in a state of agony, distress, as we read. He was sore troubled. No matter if he was troubled or dealing with agony, it was more about the condition of the inner man than the position of the outer man or the posture. And that's true for us today. It's so much more about the condition of our inner man than it is about if we stand up and pray or sit down. But remember, he was distressed. He was sorrowful. He was troubled. So let's go back to uh, Luke 22 and pick it up in verse 43, where it says, Then the angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. You guys, that's tough to relate to. That's some heavy prayer. Yes, Jesus was in serious prayer with the Father, and he needed strength. His physical, human nature needed help, yet he never lost control of his situation. He was never confused or uh, wondering about what, what he was supposed to do. Never for a moment did he, law, did he lose the vision of what he was called to do. So he continued praying. The Messiah, the Son of God, the King of kings, the bread of life, the word, Emmanuel, the lion in the tri- of the tribe of Judah, the master, the counselor, the prince of peace, the lamb of God, creator of the universe. Our Jesus went to the ground praying, knowing all too well that his time had come. And that's our Jesus, praying. And we all pray, right? We, we all pray, yeah, that not, heads nodding, heads, yeah, okay, we all pray. We all do it. We all want to be better at it, most likely. And most of us wish we prayed more often, and, you know, we all have our own personal uh, approach to how we pray, you know, whether we sit or stand or bow, where we do it, kneeling by the side of the bed or at the couch or that favorite chair or on the deck of your balcony. We have kind of a scheduled time for some of us. Excuse me. And some people combine prayer with uh, worship or singing or music, uh, listening to music of some sort. Prayer happens in a lot of forms. We we know this. And, And for some, it's by any means necessary whenever it can happen. You know, speaking to some of the young moms out there, I understand. I see my wife. And I remember you know, just watching her become a prayer warrior. Maybe today you're here and, and prayer isn't really a, a priority for you or, and you don't pray on a regular basis. Maybe you consider uh, yourself a believer and it's really not a significant part of your daily routine or your everyday life. And on the other hand, maybe there's some prayer warriors in here. In fact, I know there are. There's some prayer warriors in here that can't get enough time with God. They can't get enough time... Uh, just going to the Lord, petitioning for other people or praying for family or just trying to hear from the Lord. But this is the one way that we can commune with our Heavenly Father. As children of God, this is the way we receive direction and the way we receive uh, a word. It's the way we connect with our Father. Now, we don't always see the results of our prayer now, do we? We don't always see uh, what will happen. In some cases, we don't even know what to pray for, but we still do it because it's an act of faith, right? We do it because we expect God's going to answer us, 
And we always hope that he will. Sometimes he's silent. Sometimes he speaks. Sometimes he reminds you through scripture. And we all continue to pray. And I remember growing up in a mildly, mildly Catholic uh, family. I say mild only because we went occasionally and it was just sort of what we did. Uh, we went to Mass. I was familiar with prayer. I uh, knew that the Bible was a holy book. And I knew that the Bible even contained prayers that we were supposed to kind of participate in. But I also knew that Jesus was special. I did know that much. And I also knew, I don't know when I knew it, but I knew that Jesus was the Son of God. But when it came to prayer, I, I, I saw it as something that was to be left for other people to do, as, to be read from a book, and uh, maybe that book was the Bible, and it was to be kept within the church walls for sure. You don't want to be doing it publicly. And praying was the job of the priest as I saw it. We would stand up, and he would read the prayer, and Lord be with you, also with you. Okay, sit down. All right. And there was, then we'd stand up again and sit down. <laughs> and then we would kneel. It was like calisthenics. Um, but I remember it was, it was truly just sort of dry. It was a live your life kind of uh, the way you want to between Monday and Saturday and then pray for forgiveness on, on Sunday. You know, I hated confession because uh, I would have been, I would have kept them busy. You know, there was certainly no discussion of a personal relationship with Christ is what I remember. And, you know, there was no excitement, no joy. It was just a feel good, do good message. And, you know, there, there wasn't really any accountability uh, walking out of that building. Uh, there was certainly uh, no meat on the bone for me, at least from what I can tell. And I, the, the praying that I was doing was mostly to get out of trouble. I'll be honest. I, I was trying to get out of trouble with, you know, my teachers or my parents. And I just remember I, I liked to push the limits of acceptable behavior as a young guy. None of you can relate to what that means. Yeah, yeah, we've got one hand. Yes, all right. Honest man in the back. Yeah. <laughs> it was definitely that way when it came to school. My will was a strong will. I was stubborn. I lied. I had a little bit of an angry streak. I fought a lot. And I kind of enjoyed it. But underneath it all, I had a soft spot for the little guy because I was one of them. <laughs> There, I didn't back down from anything, and this mouth got me in a lot of trouble. And you guys, I have to tell you, it's interesting to note, all of this was kind of happening before I was even out of elementary school. I'm serious. It, it, I, was, I was a little bit of a troublemaker, and uh, I, I knew that my prayers weren't being answered, and I knew that God wasn't uh, listening to me. I certainly knew that God wasn't answering my parents' prayers. There was, but I drew them closer to the Lord. But since God wasn't listening to me, I wasn't going to listen to him. And, and I certainly wasn't going to listen uh, to God if he wasn't going to uh, bless me. And if he was mad at me, like I thought, then I was going to be mad at God. So I was. I grew up mad and confused about who God was and how he saw me. And then there was my grandmother's church, my grandma Carmen. Uh, she's a little five-foot-nothing uh, Basque woman, you know, out of New Mexico and uh, moved my parents to San Diego when my dad was about six. Uh, 
she had a church that she liked to go to as well, and it was a, an Assembly of God church in the east part of San Diego, uh, in a little place called Lemon Grove. Um, this Assembly of God fellowship, uh, you know, was her place to go, and she would somehow rope me and a couple of my cousins into coming on a Sunday afternoon, or Sunday for church, and then stay for Sunday night. And, you know, she had great cook, she was a great cook, so of course I decided to go. She was a career cafeteria lady. Uh, she worked as a career cafeteria lady. But her church had a different approach on prayer. They had a different approach on worship and the whole uh, experience as a whole. Imagine going from my Sunday experience at the Catholic church, uh, subdued, structured, mechanical, autopilot, somehow uh, reverence was in there somewhere, and then going with grandma to her very exuberant and lively, um, celebratory and uh, fascinating and you know, absolutely Wonderful display of spiritual things. Uh, yeah, I, I saw the gifts happening right before me. And I witnessed the laying on of hands for prayer. I saw group prayer. I saw uh, specific prayer for purpose of casting out demons. And I witnessed praying in tongues, both from the young and the old. And I witnessed people running up and down the aisles, including the preacher, Brother Gene. I remember his name. <laughs> Plaid suits, maroon suits. The guy was, you know, it, it was a trip. I just remember he would run up and down the aisles saying, glory be to God, thus saith the Lord, and praise be to God. You know, there was spontaneous uh, prayers from the pews, and there was prayers for the sick and prayers for finances, asking us to give, give, give by faith. And baptisms were happening. Uh, there were songs coming out of nowhere where people would come up to stage, hit the piano, and start playing songs. The Lord gave me a song. He told me to play it, you know. And uh, this was different. Uh, than what I had experienced at uh, St. Catherine's. (laughs) Suffice it to say, this young boy was confused. I had a lot of questions, especially when they turned to me and laid hands on me and said, boy, you need to get filled with the Spirit. You need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And I said, okay, fine. uh, Out of fear, I said, all right, shit about a hundred a Monday, good about a Kawasaki and a Sunday. (laughs) And I just kind of faked it. I mean, I don't know if I said that, but, you know. But the fact was, I just wanted out of there. And to their dismay, I mean, maybe I was filled with the Spirit. I definitely was not. Um, These examples are extreme, but you guys, this is my story. (laughs) This is what happened to me before I even got out of grade school. And, I mean, it's in the archives. It's a true story. It's a true story. I'm sure their prayers were, were sincere. I'm sure their, uh, their activity within the worship service was sincere. I'm not going to tell you that some of it wasn't done out of adoration and obedience to the Lord. Uh, but it made me think, uh, when I was in, uh, in, at the Horizon School of Evangelism back in 1990, uh, Chuck Butler was one of our instructors. And some of you may remember his name. He was a part of the Jesus movement. And <laughs> he said, listen, guys, if you're going to do ministry, just remember... Life is strange, people are weird, and love covers a multitude of sins, you know. And the Lord certainly covered my sins. I mean, he, uh, when I went later on to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus, he covered me. And even his faithfulness showed up when a year later, my dad came to know Christ. October 1st, 1989. I remember it. 
I wrote it in my Bible. This is the same Bible that I had when I was 16 years old. Even better, a year after that, my mom came to Christ. Yeah, amen. It does bring me to tears because why would he do that for me? Why? It's, it's a blessing, and I'll stop crying because my dad's watching. Hey, Dad. <laughs> but the approach to prayer and faith and, 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 the, and the whole worship experience was, was so dynamic for me. <laughs> that church did things differently at the Assembly of God Church, and they definitely did some things out of order. I'm going to tell you that right now. They certainly did some things that were surprising and out of left field, and it's obviously not what we're used to here at home, right? But let's face it, people have been approaching God and, and been doing things on their own and, and trying to create diverse and creative ways to fit God into their own set of ideals, into their own box of ideals. And Pastor David Guzik said it really well. I, I heard him a couple, uh, about a month and a half ago, I was at a conference, and he spoke on faith and religion and culture and, and including prayer and worship And he said this, it's what pleases us versus what pleases God. And that's, that's very simply put, the truth. We, as people, are selfish. We're we're self-centered, are we not? It, It doesn't take us long to figure out that we like things to go our way. We especially want our prayers to go our way. And we're not always happy with the way God responds to us, are we? Especially if it's negative or it requires a response or if it requires some accountability. We just want to be able to pray and be able to make choices that justify our behavior. And Okay, that's maybe not all of us. Maybe that's not any of us here. But we're kidding ourselves if we, if we think prayer to feel good is the, uh, the priority. That's not why we're supposed to pray. The Bible tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5.16, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, giving thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God for Christ Jesus in you. In Jeremiah 17.19, The heart is is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Now, if I were to ask you guys an example of prayer in the Bible, some of you uh, theologians would probably rip into the Old Testament and look into maybe, pull out one from the Psalms and say, you know, create in me a clean heart, O God, you know, and renew a steadfast spirit within me from Psalm 51. That's good. Some of you might even go a little deeper and go to 2 Chronicles 7.14 where it says, If my people are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and heal their land. But many of you recovering Catholics would also lean to what? Our Father. That's right. Yeah, I'm not going to make you recite it. 
But that's the one I knew. <laughs> I was like, hey, I got that one. Because it was drilled into my head every week, even through catechism. And uh, I even think I lied about what prayers I remembered in, uh, in catechism. It's, it was a joke for me. But that's the thing. Jesus teaches us how to pray through that Our Father prayer, does he not? He teaches us how to pray. It's instructions on who to pray to, how to pray, and why we should be praying. And when Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus knew what was coming his way. He knew what was in store for him. He was vividly aware of the difficult road ahead. He knew it would be filled with betrayal, injustice, pain, suffering, separation from the Father because of the cup of sin that would be his to bear, and ultimately death by crucifixion. But Jesus wasn't looking for a way out. He didn't pray his way out of it. He was committed to the outcome of the cross. And as we're told in Hebrews 12 too, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. And it is set down at the right hand of the Father of God. Even though there was joy, the fact is, he despised it. He despised the sin and the agony and the distress. And it's interesting that the word Gethsemane means oil press. Where they just put that, that olive in there and they roll a huge stone. And they press everything out of that. That's where Jesus was. He was in that garden. And again, he said, remember, Father, if it is your will... <clears throat> Take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And we pick it up in verse 44, where he prayed, uh, where he was there, and it's described. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. It was heavy-duty prayer, you guys. He was being hard-pressed. He was distressed. He was in agony. But let's talk about the cup for a moment. Let's talk about this cup that he mentions. What is this cup? We often see cups in Scripture. We see a cup of blessing. We see a cup of thanksgiving. But quite often we see it as a cup of wrath. As we see in Revelation 14, 10a, it says, The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. That's not a cool cup. Psalm eleven six: Upon the wicked he will rain coals, fire and brimstone and burning wind. Never seen that. Burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. Again, not a cool cup. Jeremiah 25, 15 says, For thus saith the Lord God of Israel to me, Take this wine cup of fury from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. And so it was this kind of cup, a cup of judgment, that Jesus took on our behalf. I mean, he wasn't praying uh, to remove this cup out of fear. He wasn't re- praying to remove this cup uh, to avoid anything. The brutality of the cross. He was already yielded to the process of the outcome of the cross. And David Guzik said this as a quote that I, re- that I read. It says, Jesus came as it were, uh, became, as it were, an enemy of God who, who was judged and forced to drink the cup of the Father's fury. So, we would not have to drink from that cup. Taking this figurative cup was the source of Jesus' greatest agony on the cross. This judgment 
this cup that was filled with the sin of mankind was his agony. This cup was why he was sorrowful. And it was his alone to bear and his alone to drink. Spurgeon says it very well. He says, I am never afraid of exaggeration when I speak of what my Lord endured. All hell was distilled into that cup of which our God and Savior Jesus Christ was made to drink. So why did Jesus pray about this cup to pass from him? Well, this cup was filled with the stench and the decay and the darkness of the sin of mankind, you guys. It required judgment. There was no letting it go. There was no saying, oh, you know what, that's okay. We don't have to deal with that sin. There was judgment that had to be put down for the contents of this cup that was handed to Jesus. And as Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.21, let's turn there quickly. We start in verse 18. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Verse 18, it says, Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to him, himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing or reckoning their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Now, he didn't become sin. This was him, that word to be was on behalf of, it was to be a sin offering for him to be the penalty for our sin. He didn't become a sinner, you guys. Who are the sinners? You can all raise your hand. <laughs> it's okay. A couple of us still figuring that part out. That's all right. But Jesus had never experienced anything coming between him and the Father. He had never been apart from him. And with exception to this cup and the sin and the fury and the wrath that, of, of the sin that was in there, he had never experienced that. And so we read... In Matthew 27, 46, you don't have to turn there. At about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now this is where it gets a little tough, you guys. You know, we, we see that Jesus became sin, and it's like, but he was the sin offering. And it's been taught by some that for a time that Jesus was actually separated from the Father and he bore the sin of, as he bore the sin of mankind. Again, some will teach that Jesus uh, was apart from his father, and that they point to the time of the three hours of darkness, as mentioned later uh, in Scripture, where it says that uh, in Luke 23, I believe, is that it? Yeah, it's Luke 23. Now, it was about the sixth hour that there was darkness all over the earth and until the ninth hour. And the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two, And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. So this is that thing that you guys need to be Bereans and look into it. 
you know, we look at this scripture and we say, wow, there's darkness. And um, it was the, the time where Jesus, something came between Jesus and the Father at that moment. And it was due to the sin. And we look back at the word forsaken when he says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, why have you forsaken me? It's a Greek word, enkatalipo, and it means to forsake, abjure, abandon, disavow or disown, or to forswear. So there was that moment of abandonment. There was that moment where there was something between him and the Father, during which Jesus never lost control, never lost his position. After all, he was God. God cannot separate himself from himself. Jesus was disavowed, or that word, forsaken, for the Father. But let's step back for a minute, and let's really take a look at what was happening during the time of the cross, how the Holy Spirit, how the Father and the Son work together. And there's a professor from Biola, and I keep trying to find this guy's name, but I remember reading this years ago. It gives us a picture uh, of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit at the cross. It says the Father was loving the world so much that he gave his only son. And we see the son freely giving his life, never losing control or position, and the spirit sustaining the son even while he was on the cross until his last breath. It doesn't take away the fact that Jesus had to take that drink. He had to take that cup of judgment that we were never able to take, that we were never worthy of taking. He alone bore our sins, submitting to the will of the Father. It was for our benefit. As we get close to wrapping up, I, I want to point out a couple things before we finish about the, the will of our Savior, the will of Jesus. What do we know about his will during this time? That word will, when it's spoken of, not my will, but yours be done, is the Greek word thelema. It means a determination, a choice, a purpose or decree, volition, or an inclination or desire or pleasure. It was his desire that he was leaving behind. He didn't want his will to get in the way of what the Father's will was. And here's what Jesus had to say about his own will. In John chapter 5, verse 30, we read, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. He also talks about his will in John chapter 6, verse 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus was always about the Father's business. He was always in a relationship with his Father that could not operate in any other way. He was always thinking about and responding to the Father's will. But let me tell you something about our will. This won't take too long. We all know what our will is like, our culture, our world. Uh, we can throw ourselves in there, even as Christians sometimes. The choices and determinations and desires for fulfillment you know, are based on a couple things usually about what we see, what we hear, and how we feel. You know, these three things come into play for us every day. We respond by what we see, what we hear, and what we feel. And the, the book of Romans tells us in uh, 323, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have to start there. We all have fallen short. And 
There's no changing that except for Jesus. In Genesis 6, 5, then the Lord saw the wickedness of man, the, the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of the heart was only evil continually. But how does the Bible tell us to live? How does the Bible t- you know, teach us to fight against this sin nature? If it's based on what we see, the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, for we walk by faith and not by sight. If it's by what we hear, Romans 10, 17 tells us, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And if it's about our feelings and our desires, Galatians 5, 17 tells us this, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing what you want to do, to keep you from doing what you want to do, not what the Father wants you to do. And this is why Jesus was the only one who could take the cup of judgment. He was the only man who could do it. After all, he was sinless. He was the only one who could take this cup and drink it himself. Jesus saw the cross before him. Jesus heard the voice of the Father and obeyed and trusted him. And as we read in our harmonized version of this account, Jesus felt distressed. He felt agony. He felt sorrowful. He felt troubled. So he prayed, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Can we pray like that? I don't know if I can. It's hard. That's like praying for patience. You don't want to be set up for a life of patience. It's difficult, but some of you here today may find yourselves in circumstances that require patience, that require some serious prayer. You're emotionally or physically exhausted by the life around you. Your situation seems big, maybe even too big, beyond what you can even handle. And others of you might even be running from God. And I'm not saying that's every one of you here. But you're running from the will that God has for you in your life, and you're really supposed to be running toward a life of submission and surrender. And J.C. Ryle has a quote, speaking of Jesus as it pertains to him in uh, Luke twenty-two forty-two, his will, submitting himself. It says, submission of will like this is one of the brightest graces which can adorn the Christian character. It is one which a child of God ought to aim to aim at in everything if he desires to be like Christ. But at no time is such submission of will so needful as in the day of sorrow. And in nothing does it shine so brightly as in a believer's prayers for relief. Who can say from his heart when a bitter cup is before him, not my will, but thine will be done, has reached a high position in the school of God. You guys, it's time to check our wills at the door. It's time to lay our will down before the Lord. We're we're not the masters of our own destiny. So can I encourage us all to essentially take this time, uh, whether you're a seasoned believer or not, to submit ourselves to the will, will of the Father? What do you think would happen if we did that? 
If we were able to submit, to be able to trust in his word, to be grateful for the things that he's done and to lean into his promises with a heart of surrender, to say, okay, Lord, not my will. Let your will be done in my life. Because let's face it, as believers, we know our future. We win. We get heaven. That's a victory. And I'll close with this. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24 and 26. It'll be up on the screen. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his own soul? What will you give in exchange? Many of you have already given up way too much, probably, as you look back on your life. And, and today, we have to be very grateful, very thankful that we didn't have to take the cup, but Jesus did. We don't have to endure the suffering of the cross because why? Jesus did. We do not have to do those things, but we are responsible to do one thing, and that's submit our will, pick up our cross, and follow after his will. Be like Jesus. Surrender to the Father's will. And learn how to pray, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Let's pray.